Okay, it's great to be here. Um, my title this morning is A Life Worth Living, and um, I prepared a little PowerPoint for you, but it got a little bit hijacked by my husband, who's actually preaching in our business church this morning. So, um, oops. <laughs> Yeah, well, these are the two reasons he said life was worth living. First of all, our little puppy, Frisbee, who's been with us for two weeks. You must admit she is rather cute. It is like having a toddler. We are getting up in the night. Um, it's a little tricky. And that was the other reason he said life was worth living. <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> no, I need to qualify that because Frisbee the dog is my present to Rich for our 25th wedding anniversary. So, you know, it's okay. It's all right. Um, Okay. A little quiz for you. Guess the year. Return of the Jedi at the cinema. The first mobile phone call. Doesn't it look cool? And in September of that year, Culture Club were number one with Karma Chameleon. (laughs) What? 83. Yes. Well done, Jess. (laughs) 1983. This was a significant year for me. It's the year that I first started my friendship with Jesus. I want to take you back to that year. I won't tell you quite how old I was, but I was a teenager, so you can sort of roughly do the maths there. Um, So, uh, yeah, back to my room as a teenager, alone in my room, having been searching for God, and I didn't realize he'd been searching for me. And a strong thought came over my mind. I look back now and I'd say, I think that was God speaking to me. And it said, how about following Jesus? And I was in a bit of a desperate place in my life. I was quite full of depression and some difficulties. And I thought, yes, that's what I need to do. I need to follow Jesus. And I didn't realize it at the time, what a momentous decision that was. I didn't realize that that was actually going to change my life that decision. And I prayed a prayer. I didn't really know how to pray, but I prayed the prayer that said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you in my life. I want to be friends with you. And it did change my life. And I actually would say that it gave me a life worth living. That relationship, that friendship with Jesus is the thing that's made a huge, huge difference in my life. In fact, I'd go as far as to say it radically transformed my life. And there's many stories that I could tell you, and I'm sure many people here could tell stories as well, of the difference it's made being a follower of Jesus. Some of the ups and downs of life, some of the things he's freed me from along the way. One of the main things has been a sense of depression that hung around my life for a very long time. And there was a point where somebody else prayed, and it went And it changed me fundamentally. It radically transformed my life. And last week, Steve was talking about this calling to follow Jesus. To die to ourselves and find life. That's the phrase he used. A life worth living. And I'm standing here to say, yeah, that's what happens. It becomes a life worth living. But I don't want this talk to be really about me. It's not so much about me. Because the thing is, there are millions and millions and millions of people around the world and throughout history who have a similar story. Sometimes their story is very dramatic. Sometimes it's very quiet. 
Sometimes it happened when there were loads and loads of people around, and sometimes it happened in quietness and individually. It happened in different cultures, different countries, at different times in history. Millions and millions and millions of people who have a story that finding that friendship with Jesus and following him in their life makes a life worth living. Just think about Brother Yun. Some of you will have heard of him and maybe read his book called The Heavenly Man. He is a Chinese Christian, and he started this friendship at a time in China where um, Christians were very, very badly persecuted. In fact, the leaders, the, um, the wife of the leader of the Chinese nation took round some Western dignitaries to a museum in Beijing and told them, as she pointed to the Bible in the museum, that Christianity was dead in China. Well, it's not. <laughs> There's now millions of people who are Christians in China. Brother Yun became a Christian when his mum heard a voice saying, Jesus loves you. And it caused his mum to pray for his dad, who was near death, and ask for healing. And his father was healed, and the whole family became believers. And then something amazing happened. He decided he wanted a Bible. You've got to understand that Bibles were really rare, and if you were caught with a Bible, you would be persecuted. And he started to pray, and he fasted for 100 days. He didn't go without food for 100 days. That would probably be impossible, um, or well-nigh impossible. But um, he ate a bowl of rice every day, and that was all he had, because he was desperate to get a Bible. And on the 100th night, he had a vision, maybe some sort of a dream or vision. And in the dream, uh, there was a man pulling a cart um, with some bread on the cart. And they, they said to him in the dream, are you hungry? And he said, yes, I'm really hungry. And they pulled out a red bag and gave him some bread. And as they gave him the bread in the dream, the bread turned into a Bible. He woke to knocking. You can imagine what's coming next, can't you? He woke to knocking on the door and a man with a red bag who handed him out of the red bag a Bible after a hundred days of fasting. It turned out that God had spoken to an evangelist several, probably hundreds of miles away, uh, giving him the details of the exact place, the exact village of where he should give his Bible away. Three months previously that had happened. Amazing stuff. Amazing, amazing stories that we hear from around the world, different places, different times. I was reading about the what's called the Lewis Revival, in 1949, about three years, the uh, very remote Scottish island of Lewis in the Hebrides underwent an amazing revival where many, many hundreds of people, and you've got to remember the, um, there weren't very many people living there, it was quite sparsely populated, but a vast proportion of the people actually became Christians. And it happened really sort of without men doing anything or or people doing anything about it. It's estimated that about three quarters of the people who became Christians simply did so because the power of God was so strong on them that they couldn't do anything else but cry out to God and ask him to forgive their sins and to become their friend. The lobster fishermen down on the shore, people at a dance, a hundred people at a dance, suddenly all of them thinking, we don't want to be here anymore, we need to go to church. (laughs) Can you imagine it? 400 people by the police station crying out to God because they they wanted to repent of the wrong things they'd done. Amazing, amazing stuff. 
But I want to tell you another story too. Please excuse me. Because sometimes I think we get to thinking that the stories are all out there. They're all in history or they're all in different places and not here. So I want to tell you a story of something that happened right here, and I mean right here in this building. This happened six years ago. Going the wrong way there. Now, if you are associated with Tyndale Community School, you will recognize this person as Mrs. Warmington. (laughs) She's called Charlotte. She's a good friend of ours. And I have her permission to tell her story. She was here about six years ago. She was in a big gathering, and somebody had a word from the front, and it went something like, God wants to be your father. It's like he wants to put you on his shoulders like a little child will go on a father's shoulders. And this really spoke to Charlotte because she had never known her father. Her father had gone before, I think even before she was born, or certainly when she was very young, and she'd grown up without a father and without the father's love with some family difficulties as well. And it really spoke to her. And um, she decided there and then that she wanted this for herself. She wanted God to be her father. She wanted a friendship with God through Jesus. And it was in one of the upstairs rooms that she prayed and asked Jesus to come into her life and started to follow him. Now, what's absolutely brilliant about Charlotte is it wasn't a one-off flash in the pan. It carried on. It grew. Her friendship with uh, God grew. And she began to make decisions where she would go God's way and not her own way. Just the sort of thing that Steve was talking about last week. And um, she recently was married uh, just over a year ago to a guy called Matt, who became a Christian a few years ago, listening to an R&B artist singing about Jesus. He was alone in his room. He was listening on the internet, and this R&B artist was singing about Jesus, and he just was overcome with the love of God. And that's how he started his friendship with God. The two of them got together. They got married a year last November, and they've had a tough ride in many ways this last year. They've had to move house about six times. It's been quite tough, and every time they said, no, we're going to put Jesus first, we're going to do it God's way. And God has honored that now, and now they've got a great little flat and some brilliant jobs as well God has provided. It happened right here. It can and does happen here. And I really want us to get hold of that this morning. It's not out there. It's here as much as anywhere. And God is here to save. Okay. See, the life worth living, I think, it's not just that we find God and God finds us and we find this friendship with God is that we actually have a part to play in that for other people. And that is such a fantastic, fantastic privilege. I just want to tell you about an experience I had 10 years ago. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I went to Colombia in South America. And some of you might have heard me tell this story. It was a really life-changing time for me. Because in Colombia, South America, there was a church that had grown from eight people to half a million people in the space of 20 years. And we thought that was quite impressive. (laughs) In fact, we calculated uh, the city uh, of Bogota, where the church is, is only a city of 7 million, so it's just just a bit smaller than London. 
Um, so half a million people in that context is a huge proportion. Some mathematician can instantly tell me what proportion it is, but uh, it's a big proportion. <laughs> um, anyway, we went there, and I was really overwhelmed just by the sheer numbers of people there were in the church. And um, there was a point where I looked around, and a preacher was preaching, and he was talking about Jesus dying. And he said, and he stretched out his arms and died to bring people into friendship with God. And something happened to me in that moment. I'd heard that truth, I don't know how many times over the years. But something happened that I connected Jesus and my relationship with Jesus to the things that Jesus loves. And Jesus loves other people. He loves the world. And it was an intensely devotional moment, actually. Because I realized that to love Jesus, I needed to love his mission. That he says of himself that he came to seek and save lost people. And that for myself, that then had to become my mission statement, if you like. It wasn't a hard, you should do this. It wasn't like that at all. It was like I saw something different. I saw something bigger than just myself and my own little world. And it was life-changing. So, I want to look at things a bit practically this morning. How does this happen? How can we, enge- how can we be engaged in helping other people find this friendship with God? And I have four things I want to mention on this. And then I'm going to leave us with a little challenge. (laughs) The first thing, right, and I've already said this, really, is that it's here and now. It's not at some distant point in the future or at a faraway place. It's here and now. And I think somehow we need to have a change in our thinking about this. Because I think that we do often think, well, it's out there and maybe we're very lucky and whatever, it might come here. But that's not what Jesus actually says. I want to just take us on a whistle-stop tour of Matthew 9. Um, Matthew 9, there's an awful lot going on here. I'm just going to list what's going on, really. It starts with Jesus healing a paralyzed man. The authorities, the religious leaders, aren't happy about it at all. (coughs) Excuse me. They're very annoyed, in fact. And then he goes on and he meets a chap called Matthew, who's a tax collector, and he calls Matthew to follow him. I have a soft spot for Matthew. Um, I used to be a tax collector. (laughs) (laughs) I used to work for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, collecting VAT. So I always smile to myself when Jesus calls Matthew the scum, the one nobody liked, the one who was very deeply unpopular. He calls him and Matthew follows him and he even goes to his home and you find the religious leaders are moaning that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and other sinners, other scum, I think you could translate it as. Okay, um, then the leader of the synagogue comes along, a guy named Jairus, and he's, um, he's probably tussling with himself rather a lot, thinking, I'm the leader of the synagogue, don't know about this Jesus, but my daughter's sick to the point of dying, I'm going to do something about it. And he says, Jesus, my daughter's dying. So while that's all going on, a lady comes along who's been bleeding internally for 12 years and touches the hem 
of Jesus' garment, thinking, if only I can get that close, I can be healed. And Jesus feels power go out from him, and she's healed. And they have a, a, a lovely little conversation between the two of them. But while that's been going on, Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus isn't perturbed by this. He goes on to the house, and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. This is all in one chapter. Then he heals two blind men. And then he heals somebody who is unable to speak because of demonic oppression in their life. Um, He's demonized. And uh, Jesus casts out the demon, and the person can speak again. And then it says, he went round and he healed every kind of disease and illness. He traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And finally, we get to verse 36, nearly the end of the chapter, and it says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. The harvest is great. I think after a chapter like that, Jesus probably has a point. The harvest is great. And it's true here and now as much as it was true for Jesus. And I think we somehow want to change our expectations, actually. That when we talk about the harvest, we're talking about obviously people coming into a friendship with God through Jesus. And I think we need to actively pursue a change of mindset in this area. Maybe we even need to fast and ask God to help us to change our conviction and get conviction that actually here and now is where the harvest is plentiful. And I think we need to look beyond what we can see as well. Like the great heroes of faith did, they saw beyond what was actually here, what was concrete, to something more, and focused on what God intends. Because I think we can put our expectations on what he intends. We're not trying to twist God's arm to help people become friends with him. It's not like somehow he doesn't really want to. It's a bit like what Steve was saying this morning. He wants to, and we can be convinced of that. It's not like our own personal wish list. We're just crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. He intends it to happen. And I think we can open up our hearts and line them up to the word of God because the word of God does say that the harvest is plentiful. It does say that many people are looking for God. There are many people in whom God is working in their lives. That takes me on to my second point, that God is at work in people's lives. He is at work in people's lives. We met a lady called Molly um, two, three years ago now. Molly was in her 60s. And she started doing um, a thing called the Journeys course with us. She was watching a series of DVDs. And she was beginning to piece together what it might mean to have a friendship with God. But she said something very telling and actually rather sad. She said... I'm in my 60s. She said, for over 60 years, so since I was very little, I've had loads of questions about God. And nobody's answered them for me. And I've gone for 60 years with all of these questions. And I've not known what to do with them. And we talked her through many of the questions. And she started her own friendship with God. 
But you know, there are many, many Mollies in the world who have lots of questions. And it's good to have questions because that's, we're made to have relationship with God. So it's not surprising we have questions. Many people have questions. And God wants to make himself known in people's lives. I want to tell you another story just quickly. Sorry, I keep going the wrong way. Some of you will know this gentleman. His name's Keith. Keith is the most tattooed man I've ever known. <laughs> He's wonderful. He used to be a bin man. He lives on Blackbridleys. Now, I won't... Um, there's a lot to this story, so I'll tell the abridged version. Um, when he got married, uh, him and his wife were expecting a baby, and this was over 50 years ago. The labour was three days long, and the child was born, stillborn. A little boy called Alan. It's, of course, very tragic and very difficult. But for Keith who could have gone into bitterness and blamed God, he went in a different direction. He decided that he would start to pray that this would never happen again. And to his knowledge, every night he's prayed the same prayer, um, that God would preserve the life of his children and his children's children and his children's children's children, which he has now, actually. Um, And that's happened. And... Some very miraculous things happened around that, which I don't really have time to tell you about. But the point is that he prayed every night for almost 50 years by this stage, which point we began to get to know him. And um, he came along to church um, because one of his sons was getting baptized. And um, so Rich, my husband, made an... um, a sort of uh, a date in the diary to go around and have a cup of coffee. And, um, and out comes this story from Keith uh, about the fact that he's been praying every night for 50 years. And all Rich had to say to him was, wow, you've been, you've been praying for 50 years. Do you want to know God who you've been praying for, to for 50 years? Do you want to know him as a friend? And Keith smiled and he said, thought you'd ask that. <laughs> I think Rich might be a bit predictable when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, Don't tell him I said that. Um, (laughs) Since he's not here. Um, And yeah, so Keith smiled and he said, I thought you'd ask that. And they prayed and he started his friendship with God at that point. And he's gone from strength to strength and many other members of the family have also become Christians. But the point of me telling you this story is you don't know what is going on in people's lives. There is way more going on than we ever realize. Way more. Way more. And in John 4, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus says this, four months between planting and harvest, you know the saying, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. In other words, don't wait. Don't wait for the best time. Don't wait for the right time, for perfect conditions. It's now. And look for people who God is working in their lives, and they're all around us. And we can look for them, and we can ask God to show them to us so that we can help them connect with God. Okay, so God is at work in people's lives. Number three, the kingdom of God grows. (coughs) 
what do I mean by that? Well, you might be familiar with the uh, little um, parable that, or analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew 13, which is that the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, is like a mustard seed. It's very small, but it grows and it becomes a big tree. And eventually, birds can come and flock to the tree and find shelter in it. And I'm, I'm using this to say, do you know what? We don't have to have all the answers. Because the kingdom of God grows in people's lives. And sometimes you find people who want everything stitched up before they think about finding uh, and starting this friendship with Jesus for themselves. They, they want to resolve, why is there suffering in the world today? Now, I'm not belittling that question. It's a very big question. And particularly if you've suffered intensely yourself. But theologians have been arguing over that for 2,000 years And there are some measure of answers, but you're not going to resolve the whole thing. And it would be a shame if that stopped you actually starting a friendship with Jesus. A guy called Rob Harley, who uh, some of you may have seen on the Journeys DVDs that we sometimes show, um, he came to our house one time and, and he was talking to a group of people who had newly begun this friendship with Jesus. And some of them hadn't yet started to follow Jesus and one of them asked so do you have to have everything stitched up before you become a Christian do you have to have your life in order um and he said you know what lots of people often think that he said but actually the opposite's true he said that's not it's not that at all he said because lots of your answers are found in the context of a relationship in other words you might not know what, an, what, what answer there is to your question, but you will find it in a friendship with Jesus. And he used the analogy of getting married. And he said, if you get married and you have a really annoying habit, um, trying to think of one to put on Rich, um, snoring, I <laughs> well, that's, that's not really a good, a good one because he probably can't help that. But um, let's say he leaves his socks on the floor all the time or something for me to clear up. And, and this really annoys me. Um, actually, I'm hoping that his motivation to sort that nasty habit out is the fact that we're married and he'd quite like to please me and live in harmony with me rather than us arguing about the socks on the floor all the time. And I, f- I found that a really helpful analogy because I thought, actually, sometimes in a relationship... You don't need to have everything sorted with Jesus before you start that friendship with God. Because when you get to know him, you're going to want to please him. And that's going to be a motivation. Not only that, he's also going to give you the power to change things. So I really, I quite like to challenge us on this, really, because I think we get a bit tied up sometimes on thinking we have to have, everybody has to have lots of answers Lots of T's crossed and I's dotted before they actually start this friendship with God. And we get ourselves tied up as people who are helping other people as well. And we think, so how's that going to work? And what about that aspect in their life? And you forget that actually the kingdom of God will grow if it's given the right opportunity, if it's given the right nourishment, the kingdom of God will grow. Here's something from Ecclesiastes. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they will never harvest. So I think don't let's wait for perfect conditions. Here's Samuel Johnson. I thought I ought to have some learned quote in this morning. This is my only one, who's an 18th century author and literary critic. Samuel Johnson. 
Um, nothing will ever be attempted if all possible objections must first be overcome. A little bit of common sense there, but it's true, isn't it? We won't get going if we think of all the problems. Okay. So, number four. I've just entitled this, We Work With God. We Work With God. You know, uh, when we look at Jesus, he was moved with compassion for people. Even uh, the story that Graham was referring to about the widow's son who he raised from the lie, from the dead, back to life. In that story, it says Jesus looked at the mum and he had compassion on her and felt so strongly about her pain and distress that he did something about it. And that's how we work with God. We work in compassion with people. It isn't imposing anything on anybody. I think we need to get away from that fear. It's simply compassion. We look at Jesus and how he handled people. You know, we can work on this. We can work on being a people person. Whatever that means for you, and it'll be different for everybody, a different shape. Some people are shy. Some people are outgoing. That's okay, but God does call us to be a people person in one way, shape, or form. He calls us to share life with people in the pain, when they're perplexed, when life's going well, in all sorts of different circumstances, he calls us to share life. And, you know, we work with God, we work with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who knows what to do. We talk a lot about the nudges of the Holy Spirit in our household. Um, I want to tell you quite a funny one. Some of you will have heard the story of Leslie uh, from the Lees. Leslie, we got to know a number of years ago now, her youngest son was dying of bone cancer. That's obviously a picture of her getting baptised. But we started to get to know her, and we kind of knew that God was working in her life, but circumstances were very difficult for her. And Rich was praying for her one morning, and he got what he would describe as a nudge from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying, go round to Leslie's house. It was this sort of nagging thought, go round to Leslie's house. So he decides he's going to do that, and he turns up on Leslie's doorstep. And uh, Leslie opens the door and she says, what the beep are you doing here? Leslie's quite um, an animated, uh, live wire character. What the beep are you doing here? And she says, what do you mean? Uh, she says, who the beep told you to come here? <laughs> and um, Rich says, hmm. Well, God, actually. And she goes, oh, beep. She says, it must be true then. (laughs) Because I was praying. Something had gone wrong. Something had happened uh, with Jake. We can't quite remember what it was. Some, some, you know, difficulty um, with his illness. You know, oh, beep, it's true. And she couldn't get away from the fact (laughs) um, that the Holy Spirit had nudged Rich. And he was an answer to that prayer. It was very real. It was very raw. But uh, it wasn't that long afterwards she actually started her own friendship with God. You know, I think sometimes we need to take more risks. And this is where I want to finish. We, we want to take more risks in following those nudges of the Holy Spirit. Because if you pray for them, God will give them to you. And you know what? You might get it wrong. 
You might make an awful mistake. You, you might get a bit scared by that, and you might get kind of what you call crag fast. Are there any rock climbers in the room? Way. <laughs> Have you ever got crag fast? No, are oh, you a good one then, aren't you? <laughs> I am not a rock climber. My dad is, and uh, when I was little, he often used to take me up climbs in the Yorkshire Dales, and I fairly frequently would get crag fast, and that means you get partway up a climb, you get so scared you can't go down, and you can't go up. And I think there's probably quite a lot of people who get rescued by um, the mountain rescue because they get crag fast. It's probably one of their most common things that have to get the helicopter. Well, that never happened to me. It wasn't as dramatic as that. But I would frequently get crag fast because I am very scared of heights. Um, so hats off to the rock climber. <laughs> very good. Um, but I think sometimes we get a bit like that with this. I think we get so far and we think, oh, my word. If I take another step, I'm going to make a mistake. It's all going to go wrong. Everybody's going to be embarrassed. I'm going to look stupid. I might hurt somebody. What am I going to do? And we get stuck. So I think we somehow have to deal with this. We somehow have to deal with this fear that is, can be a bit of a fear of man in a way. You know, We can recognize it's an issue. Keep your eyes on God, not the fear. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man brings a snare. But who, this is the Amplified Bible, but whoever leans on, trusts in, and puts his confidence in the Lord is safe and set on high. And I think, do you know what? If we are genuinely wanting to open our eyes to the millions of people even around us, certainly many people that we're in contact with, who God is working in their lives, if we want to do that, we need to get past our fear of mistakes. You know, if we do it compassionately, if we do it gently then Jesus will cover our mistakes anyway, and he'll help us not to make them. But I think don't let's allow fear of man to become a snare. Build your confidence. Do it alongside somebody who's a bit more experienced. Build your confidence bit by bit and open up the area of fear to God. Don't worry about your mistakes. And you know, if you have not had that experience yet, of starting a friendship with God, going back to what I was saying about myself in my room in 1983, then I think maybe you need to think about taking a bit of a risk as well. Because I think you can pray a bit of a risky prayer. Something along the lines of, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. That's a bit of a risk because he might. In fact, I go as far as to say he will. Rich prayed that prayer uh, in 1987, just before he started his own friendship with God. Somebody said to him, there are times in your life that God draws close. It's true. And the person said to Rich, don't miss it. And there are times in life when God draws particularly close. Maybe the circumstances are such that you feel more open to God, or maybe something's happened that's made you think about God. And then that's the time to take a bit of a risk and pray. God, if you're real, make yourself known to me. That's what happened to Rich. That's what's happened to many people in this room. If you're real, make yourself known. So that's the challenge I want to leave you with. Either pray that prayer, God, make yourself real. Or pray a prayer that says something like, God, I want to get over being so scared. 
I want to take more risks. I want to open my eyes to people where you are working in their life. And I want to reach out. I want to, I want to speak to them. I want to talk to them about you. I want to help them connect with Jesus so they too can become followers of Jesus. Um, I think sometimes the older we get, the more risk averse we become. So students, you might not have so much of a problem with this. You might. (laughs) It might be a challenge to you. But um, sometimes we get set in our ways. And and that's the challenge, really, I want to leave us with. Don't get set in your ways. Pray about it. Open yourself up to God and see what happens. Because it really is a life worth living that we can help people connect with Jesus.